0: Well, things are not always as they seem. That saying, I suppose, is as popular as ever. Whether you're talking about a, a movie in which the ending takes a shocking, tour, shocking turn, or you're looking up something on the web and, and you see photos of the inexplicable, but just happen to be accidental or coincidental. Have you gotten one of those forwarded to you? Or you saw it on Facebook, you know, 30 different things that are not as they seem. You know, it looks like a woman has feet for hands, but no, those are someone else's feet. Something like that, you know. We love to tell our friends at the water cooler about a new story of something like a a homeless guy who happens to have several million in the bank. There's that TV show, Undercover Boss where the CEO of a major company goes undercover as a new hire usually at a very low level of the of the org chart and uh, he tries to get an inside peek of what his business is really like and what it's like to work there and and sometimes they find real gems that never would have climbed the corporate ladder but they move them up and it's a good it's a it's a not hopeful but then hopeful story Sometimes it goes the other way where co-workers are with the undercover boss and found out to be bad employees. Things are not always as they seem. We can think of numerous examples. Coincidentally, though, that phrase, things are not always as they seem, was first coined at about the time of Jesus. A Roman philosopher, not a Christian, Phaedrus, is credited to be the first one to say, things are not always as they seem. It's not that clever. Eventually, someone would have come up with that saying, but uh, he was the first one, at least according to any record. And Phaedrus was simply making a general observation when he said it. But I'm sure there were many in his time who first observed Jesus in live time. They observed his miracles and his life, his teaching, and even his crucifixion. And they might have said something similar. Things are not always as they seem with this Jesus. That's what we see in Mark chapter 11 today. There Jesus makes a grand entrance. Or does he? It's the story that's often called the triumphal entry. But is it? Mark 11 records for us what has come to be celebrated as Palm Sunday... In fact, in God's providence, we're landing in the Palm Sunday passage on Palm Sunday. That's not because of my great sermon architecture and foresight. It's just God's blessing upon us. It's nice that it worked out that way. Palm Sunday is that day when Jesus entered Jerusalem and a great crowd gathered around him. And with palm branches down on the ground, they praised him. And today, all over the world, many churches will will actually use palm branches in their worship services. But perhaps they have forgotten that things are not always as they seem. By Mark 11, in Mark's telling of the Jesus story, it should be getting increasingly clear who this Jesus is, at least for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And yet, the confusion is just abounding for so many in the story, so many who were around Jesus at this time. Let's quickly remind ourselves what we know from Mark's telling of the story based on what we've seen so far about who this is. He told us right from the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1 he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. But who knows that? When we read on, we see people hearing his teaching or seeing his miracles, and they're amazed by it. They're astonished. Some are even enraged. But none of them are really believing, not like we think of believing and becoming Christians. In chapter 4, the disciples were afraid, and they wonder. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's the question throughout Mark. Who is this? Everyone's asking the question. No one's answering it correctly until chapter 8, verse 29. Peter's asked, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ. That's what Mark said at the beginning. The Christ, the son of God. From that point on, Jesus begins to tell the disciples what kind of Christ he is. Because the kind of Christ he came to be wasn't commonly thought of in his day. So he gave three predictions, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, about his coming rejection and death and resurrection. And yet those ideas were so bizarre and so foreign and so incomprehensible to the disciples that after the first prediction... Peter protested. After the second prediction, chapter 9, they dared not ask what it meant. And then in chapter 10, the longest of the predictions, they just ignored it until James and John tried to claim their right and left sides on Jesus' throne. It's actually a blind guy who sees better than most. A blind guy sees better than most at the end of chapter 10. Nathan preached for us at our last Lord's Supper a few days ago from the end of chapter 10 where we see blind Bartimaeus, who not only believed that Jesus had the power and the mercy to heal his blindness, but that he was uniquely the son of David, David's offspring. And hence the promises to great David about a throne that lasts forever were being fulfilled by this one, a son of David. Now healed of his blindness, Bartimaeus follows Jesus on the way. So does a great crowd of pilgrims, we find out as we read on. Pilgrims who are heading into Jerusalem for Passover. You wonder, will they see what Bartimaeus sees in their their mind's eye, their, their eyes of faith? Will they truly see? Well, let's start reading in chapter 11, verse 1. This is our passage for this morning. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Well, I think there are at least four turns in our passage for this morning. Four turns for us to hang some thoughts on. First, Jesus has a plan. He has a plan. It's a plan to go to and enter Jerusalem. Now, Mark is unique for leaving out the other times in the story that Jesus has entered Jerusalem. This is not the first time, but it is the first time in Mark's telling of the story, and that provides a little bit more drama, This is certainly the most important entrance into Jerusalem. Mark has described Jesus teaching in the north for the most part, around Galilee. And then into chapter 8, it was then that he began to head south. Not mentioning Jerusalem just yet, but we know Jerusalem is more towards the south. And it was then, in the middle of chapter 8, that Mark started using this language about Jesus and the disciples being on the way. Not just on their way, or any old way, but on the way, and on the way to his death. That language, on the way, that Mark keeps using. Well, they come right alongside all these predictions about death and resurrection that's to come. They're going to Jerusalem. That's the epicenter where all this is going to take place in just about a week. So in Mark 10 verse 32 here's one of those predictions taking the 12 again he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying see we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after 3 days he will rise he's got a plan it's all according to plan And he even has a plan on how to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Mark says colt, and the Greek word here could mean either young donkey or young horse. Matthew tells us it is a donkey. Now, this little bit is important because not just in Mark, but in all the other gospel accounts as well, wherever Jesus goes, he walks, he walks everywhere. Sometimes over 200 miles to get from point A to point B. He walks. And now he says, go get me a donkey. It's not because he's tired. There was an 18-mile journey or so that they were on. And it's not that Jesus got to the last leg of it and said, guys, someone finally get me a donkey. I'm sick of this. No, he has a plan. And that's apparent by the specific instructions he gives the disciples. Verse 2, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. That's not a common one. Untie it and bring it. It isn't clear whether Jesus had this donkey prearranged with the owner. That's possible. More likely, it seems to reflect his omniscience. He knows there's a donkey like that in that town. He knows all about it. He, he tells them, you will find one, like you'll stumble upon one. He doesn't give them very specific directions about how to discover it. But regardless of whether it's prearranged or part of his omniscience, what matters is that this is a specific colt or donkey, one on which no one has ever sat. That would be required for an animal to be used for sacred purposes or for royal purposes. You don't use work animals. You don't don't put the Pope on farm equipment, especially used farm equipment. That's That's what donkeys are, farm equipment. Unless they've been set aside for a different purpose. They've been sanctified for royal or priestly use. This riding a donkey thing is far from a symbol of humility, as it's sometimes portrayed. It looks like Jesus, you know, riding Eeyore into town. Oh, how cute. His legs can even touch. <laughs> Don't think that. You see, Zechariah nine. 9 yes, did refer to a king coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, but it's the king who's coming who's humble. The image of a donkey wasn't a symbol of humility. The donkey was actually a symbol of royalty. Kings rode donkeys, at least when at home. When at war, of course, they rode powerful stallions. But when at home and at peace, they rode donkeys as a symbol of the peace that they were enjoying. Jesus has a plan, and not just to enter Jerusalem, but to make a statement. Jesus has a very specific plan, and hence he gave specific directions. Did you notice how slowly and specifically Mark told this story of Jesus giving directions, and then the disciples going and doing it? It's, It's sort of repetitious, and that's unusual for Mark. Mark is known for brevity. He's famous for those superfluous immediately's. Everything happens immediately in Mark. Immediately this happened. Immediately that happened. Everything's immediate. But here he slows things down. He has Jesus describe the directions in detail. Then the actual playing out of going and getting the donkey at each level. Tuck that away. We'll come back to why this is told so slowly. Jesus has a plan, but what does the plan mean? Secondly, Jesus is going public. He's going public. That's what the plan means. Verses 1 through 6 were planning or preparation done by Jesus and the disciples. But but verse 7 is the moment of truth. Verse 7, it says, they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. When Jesus sits on this donkey on which no one has ever sat before, he's sending a message. This was not a cult waiting to be bought and then put into farmly service. This is one that had been set aside for stuff that's public, stuff that is that is royal or priestly. You see, Jesus is now going public about his identity and his mission. And this is new in Mark's telling of the story. This is in contrast to what we've seen already in Mark. What we've seen with those who he healed, he repeatedly told them, especially when among the Jews, tell no one of this. When demons have identified him out loud, he shut their mouths, made them stop. When Peter confessed him as the Christ in chapter 8, immediately he charged them to tell no one. And when he was transfigured before them on the mountain in chapter 9, and when the father there said, this is my beloved son, Jesus told Peter, James, and John, tell no one about this till after the resurrection. Through the first first 10 chapters of Mark, Jesus has been tapping the brakes on his popularity and his identity. He's needed to. He's needed to keep wraps on things before the conflict happens, before it's supposed to. But if he's been tapping the brakes for the first 10 chapters, chapter 11, verse 1, he's stepping on the gas. We even got a hint of that back in chapter 10 with good old blind Bart. He said, Jesus, son of David, and he yelled it and said it twice. And Jesus didn't say, shh, no, 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 shh, just between you and me, shh. He didn't do that. He's done that before, but now he's going public. He's not just a king, but he is the king, the son of David, the promised son, the restoration of the kingship and all the promises that go with it. I mentioned Zechariah 9 already, and Drew read that for us earlier in the service. Let me read it again, because this is what Jesus has in mind as he planned for and then sat upon and rode upon a colt. Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you! Righteous and having salvation, is he humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a donkey? He shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus getting a colt, a donkey, and riding on it is making a very bold and public statement. He's saying, I'm the Zechariah 9 king you've been waiting for. And they were waiting for a Zechariah 9 king. The Jews in Jesus' day, among other scriptures, interpreted Zechariah 9 as a messianic passage, something to be fulfilled in the future, something that they would watch for to see, in age to come, a person to come, that would bring in God's promises of old. And Jesus is that. He's with righteousness and with salvation and with peace. And your king is coming to you, Jerusalem. Zechariah 9 is being self-fulfilled by Jesus here. So is Genesis 49, I believe. Genesis 49. Listen to verse 10 and 11 of Genesis 49. There where Jacob is blessing his sons one at a time. And he gets to Judah. And he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. That's a different him. That's not Judah. That's Judah down the line. Until tribute comes to him, who's to come? And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Now remember I said that Mark is telling this story unusually slow by Mark's standards. Did you notice the repetition of tied and untied in Mark 11? It's four or five times. You'll find a colt tied and then you're going to untie it. And then the disciples go find a colt, it's tied, and they untie it. And then the owners say, what are you doing untying that colt? Well, I think Mark is helping us and Jesus is helping us with an extra wink toward Genesis 49. Binding, tying his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Jesus is the Zechariah 9 fulfillment. He's the Genesis 49 son of Judah to come. And he's going public about it all. There's no denying Jesus' intentions here. There's no way to read Mark 11 and conclude Jesus is just a nice guy, just a good teacher. As C.S. Lewis famously said, you only have three options. Either he is a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Either he lied about who he was, or he thought he was the Lord, but he was crazy, or he was the Lord. But there's no neutrality with him. You can't play it safe and think that he's just good and nice. He is not nice. He's the Lord. And again, as I said already, it's important to know that this is not just communicating something about Jesus himself, but about an age, a time, a period that was promised long ago. Jesus, in doing this, in entering Jerusalem like this, is not only saying the king is here, but the kingdom has come. God has come. And all those promises of old that seem to be on snooze or on hold for so many years, they're being revived and they're starting to be fulfilled. It's the beginning of the end. Or really, it's the beginning of the end of the beginning. I know, that's confusing. Why did I say that? Well, because Mark begins with the beginning. Remember that? Mark 1, 1, this whole thing is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the beginning, but we're coming to the end of the beginning of the beginning. Did I say that right? I'm still not sure I got this worked out in my head. I'd need to sort of map this out somehow. Maybe one of the engineers in the room can help me after the service, but There's something going on here about the beginning. It's the end of an era. It's the beginning of a new one. And that's bad news for those who won't see it, for those who won't repent of their sins, for those who won't believe and embrace the Christ. But it is good news that this age has come for those who will see it, for those who repent of their sins, and those who believe that Jesus is the promised one. He has a plan, and he's going public with it. Will they see it? Will they get it? Well, thirdly, Jesus gets his praise. He gets his praise. Almost immediately as he sits on the donkey, praise begins, verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, by the way, we need to clear up something that is often preached, and maybe you've heard, it's that this fickle crowd is just amazing, that in one week's time, they can go from singing Hosanna and praising him to to then five days later, saying crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas instead. Yeah, it's likely two groups though. This group is fickle but they're not that fickle or fickle in that way. They're likely two groups. This group is a group of pilgrims from Jericho going into Jerusalem. These are not Jerusalem residents. This crowd lay their cloaks on the dirt for this coming king, just as was done for King Jehu in 1 Kings 9 when he was anointed king. They take leafy branches or palm branches, and they spread the branches down on the ground to make a path for Jesus that he wouldn't touch the dirt. That isn't in the Old Testament, actually. There's no precedent for it in the Old Testament. It was done for a Jewish revolutionary in about 160 B.C. A man named Simon Maccabeus who led the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucians before Romans had come in and taken occupation of that land. So here's Israel under occupation, not with Romans, but Seleucians. And one sort of leads the charge for a Jewish revolt against them. And and after one of their victories, Simon Maccabeus entered Jerusalem, and the crowd came around with palm branches, and they waved the palm branches, and they put the palm branches down as they sang praise songs. That's what they're doing for Jesus. It's something like a red carpet treatment. Some go before, some are after. He's around them all, and they're around him, all around. And they were all shouting, probably antiphonally. This group says, Hosanna. And this group says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the other group says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And then the other, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means, Lord, save now. Save now. When it says Hosanna in the highest, that means save us from heaven or save us in heaven. And when it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that means blessed is the one who comes on God's behalf, with God's authority to do God's will. These lines come from Psalm 118. Verse 25, save us, we pray. Hosanna, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And then to Psalm 118, they added, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. No coincidence, probably, that they had just heard Bartimaeus call Jesus the son of David. And they saw Bartimaeus be healed. And then they see Jesus call for an unridden colt. And they see him get on this unridden colt. Who knows how much exactly they got, but they're connecting some dots here. They're thinking in messianic terms here. These are people who know their Bibles. These are people who not only go into Jerusalem for Passover, but sing songs on the way there. They've done it in years past, never with a prospective Messiah in your midst. And so they sing like never before. Jesus finally gets his praise. In Mark, there isn't much of that. There's some compliments. There's some good expressions of faith. There's some right and proper identities that are made. This is the first time, really, that Jesus is getting his praise. And yet, there is a horrible irony to their praise. Nothing they say is inaccurate, but as a whole, it is a whole world off the mark of where it should be. There's a nationalistic flavor to what they're talking about here, what they're praising. Those palm branches give it away. Those palm branches have Simon Maccabeus written all over them. They're thinking, Simon Maccabeus gave us a good three, three and a half years. But then they killed him. What we need is Simon Maccabeus 2.0. Or The real one. He wasn't it. Maybe this is the real one. But they're thinking only in nationalistic terms. They're thinking not just in restoration, but even retribution. Yes, they're thinking in messianic terms, but they're imagining a different different kind of Messiah. Yes, they're probably thinking something kingly is going on here, but they're imagining a very different kind of king. This crowd couldn't imagine why Jesus really was going into Jerusalem We know, the 12 disciples know, they've been told three times, he's going into Jerusalem to be delivered over to death, to be killed. The crowd was imagining a David-like warrior king, as Peter no doubt was when he rebuked Jesus for talking about rejection and death. They were looking for a king to come who would overthrow that Roman tyranny, They knew their Bibles. They read their Bibles. They even connected dots. But they did so selectively. Can that just make us a little bit nervous for ourselves? Here are people who know their Bibles. They're not bad at connecting theological dots in the Bible. But because they do it selectively, they're a whole world off the mark. Jesus is the king, just as they say. I mean, ironically, he is going to save as Psalm 118 prayed. Not the way they think of save. But he is going to save. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is bringing the kingdom of God and the kingdom of David. He is the fulfillment of Genesis 49 and Zechariah 9 and so many others. And he has indeed come to defeat an enemy. They're so close. But things are not always as they seem. Jesus has come to defeat an even greater enemy, a longer lasting enemy, a more powerful and persistent enemy than even the Roman Empire. He's come to defeat Satan. He's come to destroy sin. He's come to be exalted in this world like no other. He came to be a ransom, he said. Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, I didn't come to be served like most kings do. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, as a payment for sins. I came to die in the place of those who deserve death because they've gone astray. And that's all of us. We've all gone astray. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? And was raised? Do you believe that Jesus died and when he did, it just wasn't something unfortunate or a moral lesson like turning the cheek, but something spiritual and cosmic was happening in relationship to the punishment of sin? Do you believe that? Do you believe that when he died on the cross in that way, that he was doing something for your sins? Then believe and receive, embrace that. Call out to him in faith. Well, as the story unfolds in Mark 11, the crowd fades from the picture. In fact, they mysteriously disappear. It's, there, there's the fickle part of this crowd. Not that they would crucify him, crucify him five days later, but that, you know, they're throwing a party. They're having loud and, and happy praise. And then by verse 11, it's just Jesus and his disciples, and there's no mention of the crowd. That's all right. That's Mark's telling of the story to put the spotlight solely on Jesus here. Jesus now takes his place. Fourthly, Jesus takes his place. Verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Stop there. That's significant all by itself because he's not going into the temple as a pilgrim or as a tourist, he's not going in to make sacrifices then why is he going into the temple? Ever thought about that? Why did Jesus enter the temple? Well, actually, the answer is back at the beginning of Mark, where Mark begins, yes, with a purpose statement. This is about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but then goes on to quote from the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah, and then he quotes from Malachi 3. It's the Malachi 3 one that tells us what Jesus is doing here in Mark 11. Bear with me. Mark 3, verse 1. Sorry, Malachi 3, verse 1. Which is quoted in Mark 1. says, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And then Mark stops quoting. He's going to introduce John the Baptist, who's the messenger who comes before Jesus. He wants his readers to know that John came first as a fulfillment of what Malachi was talking about, where a a messenger would come before the way of the Lord and the, the Lord's coming. Now, Mark stops quoting Malachi, but we shouldn't stop reading Malachi. Whenever the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, it takes a little bit, and it expects you to go back there if you can and rummage around a little bit. It doesn't just take a nugget from the Old Testament that's floating and free. It's assuming you know something, what's going going on around it. And that's the case with Malachi being quoted by Mark. Malachi 3 goes on to say, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Behold, he is coming. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Do you see what's happening here? In Mark 11, verse 11, Jesus takes his place. The Lord has come to his temple just as he promised. And he has finally come to his temple. This temple that was rebuilt in the days of Nehemiah after the Babylonian captivity... But unlike the first temple in which the glory of the Lord descended upon it and filled it. And there he was. He was inside. With the second temple in Nehemiah's day. They built it. And no glory showed up. God never entered it. Not like the first. Even many years later as Herod was gussying up the temple. No glory entered it. Jesus entered the temple. He has come to his temple. And what will he find? What will he do next? Well, Jesus takes his place, but it's too late. It's too late. That's what Mark tells us. That's really what Mark says. I know, it seems bizarre, doesn't it? Verse 11, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. How anticlimactic is that? Now, most of us would just assume, eh, that's sort of like a, a just so bit of the story. It just so happened. And, and so I'll keep reading to see what happens next and to see what would what, what, you know, I'm not supposed to stop here. I think Mark means for us to stop here. He's not just portraying Jesus as a poor planner. You know, he didn't have a watch with him, and it's three miles back to Bethany. They passed Bethany on the way to get to Jerusalem. Jesus gets to Jerusalem and realizes, shoot, I'm out of time. I guess I'll just go back to Bethany and do some stuff tomorrow. No, no, no. Mark is not showing Jesus as a Poor planner, but, but there is some irony in the fact that this is no grand entrance, this is no triumphal entry. But it is ominous. A masterful storyteller, Mark is giving us an ominous foreshadow here in verse 11. If this was a movie, the music would be swelling with drama and weight and suspense, and the camera would zoom in on Jesus' face as he went into the temple. And he looked around at everything. You see, Jesus will come back to the temple the next day. Chapters 11 and 12 of Mark are all about the temple and the temple leaders. Let me just give you a preview, quickly. On the way back into Jerusalem, the next day, chapter 11, verse 12, Jesus sees a fig tree with no figs on it, and he's hungry, and so he curses it. And then he enters the temple... And he turns over the tables of the money changers. They've turned his house, his house, into a den of thieves. Then, on the way out, he explains about the cursed fig tree to the disciples, except he doesn't explain much. He refers to a mountain being taken up and thrown into the sea a mountain, a temple mountain. When he enters the temple again, his authority is challenged by the religious leaders. And so he tells them a parable about wicked tenants. A boss had tenants and they were wicked. And when he sent messengers to the tenants, they killed the messengers. And so this owner sent his son. And they killed his son. They killed his son. It's then that Jesus quotes this. Chapter 12, verse 10 the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Their rejection of him was their judgment upon themselves, and it was the means of his victory. So, chapter 11, verse 11, he came to the temple and he looked around at everything. He's inspecting it. This is his, he's taking inventory. He shook his head, no doubt, at what it had become, and he looked around because it was coming down. Jesus came to the temple, and he looked around because it was too late. I'm fairly certain Mark is playing on words here. He is not just giving us something for our watches and practical schedules He's not just telling us about Jesus' need for rest in the evenings. He's saying it's too late. It's too late for the religious leaders, it's too late for the temple. It's all too late. Judgment is coming. I mean, just in days, the sky is going to go black. The earth will quake. The curtain in the temple is going to rip from top to bottom. And thereby, a new way will be made through the blood of Christ for all those who believe. Jesus' cross is bearing the judgment for the sin of those who will come to believe. And it is also proof of the judgment on those who reject him. We Christians rightly see the cross is salvation. What we'll see later on in Mark is the cross is also a symbol of judgment. Thankfully, not on us who believe, but it is indeed just wrapped up with judgment. So this is the calm before that storm. And it's ominous. It's ominous. The 12 simply follow him out who knew, who knows how much they, they understood of this you can imagine Peter telling Mark Peter was probably Mark's source for all this you can imagine Peter saying honestly, we get there, he goes into the temple, he looks around and then we go back it was weird and maybe Mark goes you know I, I, th- I got it, I think I know what he's doing or maybe Peter came to know that later on. I don't know. But, but nevertheless, still, still mystified by all that's going on around them, yet still following him on the way. They go out. Don't forget they're following a Messiah who's going to the cross, who's engaging this conflict. Will they keep following him? Well, we'll see. At least one won't when he turns Jesus in for a bag of silver. Will they come to remember all that he said and get it? Will they finally believe and eventually bear fruit? Yeah, they will. We'll see more of that this weekend, n- next weekend to come. What kind of king do you want? You've seen what kind of king the crowd wants and what kind of king Peter and others perhaps wanted for a time. What kind of kingdom do you seek? One of glory or one of the cross? Is it a crown of gold or is it a crown of thorns? What kind of savior do you think you need? A political one? We learn from this crowd that it's possible to have national political expectations for Jesus that Jesus doesn't have. We should be careful here. We should be careful here. It's still possible to make that same mistake today. There is a way to pray for our land that glorifies God and is good. It's even commanded. It's needed. There's a way to pray for our country and the people in it and the flourishing of the gospel among us. And there is a way to pray for politics and government in a way that looks very Simon Maccabee ish, it looks very palm branchy. Be careful. We also learn from this crowd that it's very possible to know the Bible, to quote the Bible, to sing the Bible, to be in proximity to Jesus, to even be excited about him and still not know him and still get him massively wrong. Do you hear that? It is possible to know the Bible, to quote the Bible, to sing the Bible, to be close to Jesus and to be excited about him, even to make some decent Bible theology connections and not know him. And hence, get bored by him. He goes into the temple. He looks around. You go do your thing. It was a fun little party march on the way in, but I don't know. What's next? Cotton candy? Anything going on in Jerusalem that's more exciting? They they, they are someplace else. But he's the king, and he's not a wax nose to shape in our own liking. He's the king that is, not the king of our own making. It is him who takes the scepter of Judah because it belongs to him, and he comes And the obedience of the nations is and will evermore be his. He has already untethered his donkey from a vine. And Genesis 49 goes on to say, And he will wash his garments in wine or blood, his robes in the blood of grapes. Rejoice greatly, you who believe, you who trust him as the Savior, in Christ, rejoice greatly, shout aloud, Behold, your king has come to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. But Zechariah 9 does go on to say, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battled bow shall be cut off. He will win. And yet... He shall speak peace to the nations, Zechariah 9 foretold. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This Lord whom you seek, Malachi said, he will suddenly come to his temple. No, no, he he did come to his temple. He is the temple. Behold, he is coming. And when he comes again, who can endure the day of his coming? Even now, as we sit here in this room, there is a calm before a storm. There's a coming judgment. He is not done. It's not just judgment, he has a plan. He has a plan, he is going public. He will get his praise. And he will take his place. He has taken his place. And he will again one day come. He will take his place. And we will either be with him. Or he will be against us. When he returns again, it will not be on a peaceful donkey. But it will be on a mighty war horse. We shouldn't think of Mark 11 or any of the triumphal entry passages without also contrasting it with Revelation 19 and the picture of him coming someday in the future and coming in judgment. John says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He's that majestic. He is not just nice. He is not boring. He is utterly glorious in his justice and his patience. He is utterly glorious in his holiness and salvation. In his power and in his nearness. He is glorious in all that he is as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Taste and see that he's good. Know that there is none besides him. He is the Lord. That should induce fear that hopefully leads to repentance and faith and salvation. It will also induce in some hatred and pushing away. And for those of us who come to believe for some time now, Jesus in all his glorious attributes is wonderful to our eyes. We don't understand it all. We want more of it. We want to see him and behold him in all his glorious attributes. Again, C.S. Lewis, he said, we are half-hearted creatures, we humans, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the, at the sea. C.S. Lewis said, we are far too easily pleased. And I would add, we are not. We are not too easily impressed. But always oh, should be. Stand in awe of him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray faith in you would spread here this morning. We pray for your rule through grace in the hearts of all those in this room. We pray for more of your rule in our hearts as those who believe in you and trust in you and identify with you and follow you. We want to crown you with many crowns over and over. We want to crown you throughout all eternity. We want to acknowledge your kingship and glory, your beauty and wonder, your power and your humility. It's a comfort to know that in a new heaven and a new earth someday when you return, we will sing your praises without distraction, without tiring, without any hint of aggravation but with hearts happy and fully exalted in you as they were made to be. Would you give us a taste of that when we sing together this day, every Sunday, whenever we do. Help us to crown you with many crowns. Amen. Just you stand together? Let's crown them.